0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Wow, good evening, everybody. What a fantastic turnout to uh, um, hear our fabulous, distinguished Fulbright Scholar, Professor Chin, Jean Chin, uh, speak on uh, global and diverse leadership tonight. Um, I would like to, my name's Donna Hartz, I'm the Acting Director of the National Centre for Cultural Competence at the University of Sydney, and I'd like to, as an Aboriginal woman and also as a member of the university community, acknowledge the traditional owners of the country that we're meeting on tonight, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay our respects to Elders, uh, past, present and emerging. Um, The lands that we meet on tonight, many of you will know, but for those of you that don't, um, it is a sign of respect um, when we're meeting on the traditional lands. Our Aboriginal people are the um, oldest and most resilient culture on the planet and we should be something we should be very, very proud of and celebrate. And an acknowledgement, I'm a um, a Kamilaroi woman or Kamilaroi woman from western New South Wales. My family, um, both sides, originated from that area. So I acknowledge you. I acknowledge the, um, the, the lands that we're meeting on. Any Gadigal traditional people can welcome you to this country here and the Gadigal country um, of the Eora Nation. Eora Nation is the wider clans that are taking the Bidjigal and the Darug people uh, within the Eora Nation. And it goes to the Hawkesbury River to the north, the Nepean River to the west, and the, uh, the Corks River to the south. Um, so thank you for um, just acknowledging our traditional owners. Um, just need to... Uh, just some housekeeping. Uh, Phone's on silent and I just wanted to let you know that this is being filmed by Sky News and an audio recording of the event will be made available through the Sydney Ideas website. If you would not like to be filmed, please let a staff member know. Okay, so I'm not going to actually put up your hand, but just let somebody know that if you don't want your face to be seen on Sky News... So, as I said, it's my pleasure to introduce Professor Jean La Chin, who's the Fulbright Distinguished Chair in Cultural Competence at the National Centre for Cultural Competence, Sydney. Jean visits from the Adelphi University in New York. Her Sydney Ideas uh, talk today will give us unique insights into what global and diverse leadership can look like at an individual and organisational level. We feel quite privileged to have someone of Jean's experience and recognition here on behalf, uh, here as a guest of our centre. Uh, Some of the questions Jean's talk will address include the paradigms we should use to examine and access leadership that is culturally competent and inclusive, the effects of social identities, lived experiences and context when assessing or training diverse leaders as well as cultural-specific concepts to consider and how they may emerge in the exercise of leadership. She'll also cover the, what is successful 21st century leadership can look like as our society and communities become increasingly global and diverse. So Jean is the, um, uh, the Dean of the Derner Institute of Applied Psychological Studies at the Adelphi University and is a licensed psychologist She has more than 30 years of experience as an administrator, educator, clinician and consultant in health, mental health and human services. She has trained psychologists and health professionals in the diagnosis and treatment and has helped to, to develop culturally competent training curricula for working with diverse populations. Her research can be seen as part of a movement away from cultural sensitivity towards cultural competency from her perspective, the problem, quote, the problem, was that you can be sensitive, um, you can be sensitive, but that doesn't mean that what you were doing was necessarily competent. End of quote. Her own work has taken a systems approach and has had impact on policies at the state and institutional levels. Her most recent book is *Global and Culturally Diverse Leaders and Leadership: Challenges for Business, Education, and Society*. As the Fulbright Distinguished Chair, Jean is researching leadership and cultural competence amidst rapid social change and a growing uh, population diversity. And here in Australia, we've been um, lucky to be collaborating with Jean as she looks at uh, minority leadership, um, diverse and minority leaderships within the Australian context, which has been challenging, we can say, Jean, to say the least. trying to get ethics through. What do we need to say any more? Um, so, through diverse, uh, through interviewing diverse leaders across the globe, Jean is challenging the concept of leadership, which is often viewed through a Western lens. So, I'd just like you to put your hands together and welcome the distinguished Fulbright uh, Professor Jean Jin Lao.
1: Thanks. Well, thank you very much for the warm welcome, and uh, I'm here to talk. Let me get my take, take off my glasses so I can see. I can't see you now, but I, at least I can read. <laughs> and so, it, why? So I'm going to start with why are we talking about global and diverse leadership? And I'm glad to see so many uh, range of ages and and uh, uh, people in the group tonight because I think it's a really important topic. The first part is let me just define a little why I use the terms "global and "diverse. And diverse leadership is, focuses on difference and inclusion, and it includes attention to social identities, while global leadership is defined as worldwide, international and intercultural. And they are different things, and often t- and I have to emphasize this, because many times people think of going from diverse to global, and that's not quite the case. The other is, I've been here five months now, and I've learned to say, I'm not from this land. You know, I am from the US, and I've learned to acknowledge that we are on the land of Gadigal people, the Aori Nation. So it's my pleasure to be here. Okay, so this is, this is a time of change, that during the 1960s was a time of social revolution throughout, certainly throughout the UN, <coughs> excuse me, Throughout the U.S. and throughout the world, we had the Vietnam War, the Beatles, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and both who were assassinated, and we had the peace movement and the race to the moon. These were the things that defined our times during the 60s. Women demanded, and it's good to see many women in the group, uh, women defined, uh, demanded equality, and ethnic minorities demanded empowerment. And uh, the women's movement at the time was about getting a seat at the table. And the civil rights movement was about ending discrimination and being empowered. So why today? We still haven't eliminated the disparities that we fought so hard against in the 60s. And we continue to judge and cast doubt about the other, those who are different from us. You know, so it's time for us to examine our leadership today and if we're going to have a future forward together and we need to promote then diverse and global leadership. So what about leadership today is that we're in a digital age, uh, which brings about rapid and significant change in society and all our institutions, including the university here. We are in the business now of providing services, not products, unlike the 20th century when we're talking about the Industrial Revolution where it was about machines and products and things that we produce. We don't produce things as much as we have communication, information, it's an information society. Um, And our communities are increasingly diverse and our international borders are more fluid and narrow because we can go and exchange with one another in ways at rapid paces that we never could before. So that we need to have a leadership that our leadership also needs to be diverse and inclusive inclusive of all the groups that are gonna be effective. So in an institution of higher ed, like the university, we need to prepare our students to face the challenges of the rapid changes that are occurring throughout, of the uncertainty um, that there is in our society and in many of our institutions, and that it takes leadership to do that. So, that, so one, let me talk a little about culture and leadership. That, uh, that really brings us to the heart of looking at diverse and global leadership because as shine has talked about who's done a lot of work on organizational cultures is it's two sides of the same coin because leaders first create cultures and then cultures determine the criteria for that leadership so it's really quite circular and that we need to, if we're going to talk about global and diverse leadership we need to recognize that aspect in leadership that we are talking about cultures So where do I start? First, I applaud the university for the slogan that greeted me when I came on campus in January. And it said, leadership for good starts here. And I thought, oh, this is great. I felt at home. I felt I had come to the right place because cultural competence is about leadership and about leadership for good. The permanence and the good and the greater good. And I juxtapose the old and the new because that's what it also is about. And I read that to mean that we need to understand the pain to not repeat our mistakes, to learn from our past and our knowledges towards a better future. And that's in the leadership. And that's why as an American, I'm paying by what I see in our policies of our present leader, that Uh, Donald Trump has disrupted all the values that we fought for during the 60s. That that was what has been so unsettling for us. We thought we had made the gains. We thought we were going ahead. And that he has challenged that in how he has chosen to uh, continue to govern and all. So I read that to mean that we need to honor our past, our ancestors, what came out, Uh, what came before us as we map out our future. And that's why I think the slogans that I see here are so important in acknowledging that. So the other slogan that I saw as a parallel to that is a lesson in unlearning. So what does that say? If you look at, I don't know if you could read all that, but it says, throughout our lives, we're taught important lessons. We learn how to talk, to write, and even how to behave. But there's one important lesson that most of us never get. It's a lesson in unlearning. And it's only by challenging the established, questioning the accepted, and being brave enough to break down old rules that we can write new ones. That's what global and diverse leadership is about. That uh, it's about change. It's about change for the good. But we need to start with unlearning. So what do we need to unlearn? That's a question you should think about. And I hope that (laughs) as I go through the presentation that there will be different things that will provoke your thinking along those lines. So we start with cultural competence and cultural humility. That That diversity is a strength, it's our strength and access and equity is access and equity is our goal. And we have to start by acknowledging the people in the land that we serve. And that cultural competence, then, is really about a set of attitudes, skills, behaviors, and policies that enable people and enable organizations to work effectively across cultural situations, differences, and all. But it's not sufficient without a cultural humility that recognizes the other without marginalizing the differences and recognizing the fact that no one will be totally competent if he or she is not a part of that culture. So that being able to maintain that interpersonal stance is part and parcel important to being culturally competent because it's aspirational. And then coming to Australia, I've learned, I had to re-examine assumptions that I held you know, for a long time. Growing up in the US, I was always asked, are you Chinese or Japanese? I learned always to answer, I'm Chinese, until I visited Germany when I was in my 20s. And upon greeting the customs officer in Germany, I was asked with enthusiasm, because he had never seen someone like me before. And he had said, Chinese? To which I immediately said, yeah. And he'd take one look at my U.S. passport, and he was furious, flung it back at me, and said, you're an American. And you know something? That was the first time I realized I was an American. That was in my 20s. And I grew to be offended by that question what are you, where are you from? Always because it presumed that I was a foreigner in the US. And But coming to Australia, what I found, that I was often asked that same question, where are you from? Or I found that people would ask each other that question without offense. And I thought it made me think, it made me re-examine my assumptions. And I realized that when I'm asked that question in my own community, within the Chinese American community, it's not an offense, because they're looking to make that connection, to make that bonding in asking the question. Whereas when I'm asked by that among the white American population, that it's to distance, it's to set me off as being a foreigner and being different, and that was what I learned coming here is because when that gets asked here, it seems to come with wanting to really connect rather than trying to distance. It's acknowledging the people, the land, and acknowledging where we come from. And that was learning for me that I think is really important to recognize. And uh, so that brings me to my foray into looking at leadership having come from doing it on the ground, and that uh, when I first came across the GLOBE studies, this is by House and all his colleagues in 2004, that I thought, oh, this sounds good, is that we have uh, these studies are probably the most comprehensive cross-cultural studies of leadership that span 62 different countries. And I thought, oh, I'm interested in culture and leadership. Maybe this is what we need. Their sample is like 23,000 and everything. But when I looked at the research and how they measured, how they got their samples, that I began to realize that, wait a minute, it's cross-cultural, but it is not culturally competent. Why? Because of all the attributes, the traits that they were talking about, they found nine universal, nine dimensions, and they profiled the 62 different countries with the single country profile. And in the work that I've been doing on diversity and research uh, on leadership and other areas of diversity is that there is not one profile. That's the very thing that we try to promote is that there is not one American. There is not one type of group. We can't overgeneralize. And if we ignore those differences, that we really are incompetent and ineffectual in terms of what we do with regard to leadership. And the other thing that they did was to homogenize their samples. And that has a history in terms of science and research that uh, the samples had to, they threw out the outliers. And what what did that mean in the GLOBE studies? They threw out women, they threw out minority groups, because they didn't fit the norm. And that's how they came up with national profiles that made it look, here's an American, here's an Australian, but it misses the very essence of the complexity of groups and individuals that make up that difference. So that those were some of the reasons, and the most recent, uh, you know, the, it's, it's a really a lot of research behind that and all, but the most recent update of the GLOBE studies, because the, they have, since 2004, they've had two different iterations, and in 2014, they came with of the six leadership dimensions or leadership styles that they found, they've come to claim that the charismatic value base is near universal. And that to me is even more problematic in that the very thing we talk about when we talk about diversity and leadership is there is not one prototype about leadership, that we need to look at what different diverse leaders and groups contribute to leadership. There's not one prototype about what is effective and what they've done in making that near universals because they put all the good things into this particular dimension and all the neutral or negative things into the others. And I'll get more into that as I go through some of the the models that, uh, I've, uh, that we're working on and what we're doing now. And I use this not just or not only to criticize the GLOBE studies, but most leadership models propose this kind of leadership prototype. And that's often very Eurocentric and describes leadership that's largely exercised by those who are already in positions of leadership which is primarily that of white men. It's not to say that white men can't lead. It's not to say there aren't good white male leaders, but when that is the only way said to be effective, then that's where we have a problem and initial. So so based on a lot of that, we came up with the work. This is um, Diversity and Leadership is uh, the uh, first book on uh, diversity in leadership. I have one on women in leadership, in which we offer a way to do leadership, to look at leadership, and to evaluate effective leadership using what I call the DLMOX paradigm. And what that is is looking at not just leaders. I realize that probably, uh, should be the coloring should be better, but not just leaders but diverse leaders. It's not just what's an ideal prototypic leader, but what's the diversity of those leaders and the social identities that he or she bring to leadership. And also, we can't forget the members, that it is also members, and, mem- and members are also are diverse in the social identities that they bring. And as well as in addition to their social identities, it's their lived experiences. And that's what I'll get into more. And lastly, we can't forget the context. The context of the organizations, the context of the social context. And all of them, you could see with the X in the middle, is they interact. That we can't look at it unidimensionally because trait theories of leadership really concentrate on the top circle. And other theories uh, concentrate on one or the other, but not the complexity and the uh, the, the, uh, dimensions that we're talking about. And most theories then are incomplete in espousing one prototypic type of uh, leader or leadership. Which brings us into the elements of the uh, DLMOX paradigm which is the three circles. That if we look at social identities, instead of looking at the traits of leadership, which there's a lot of research on, what makes a good leader? you know, What are the traits of a good leader? And has never found a consensus worldwide about what that, those traits are. But if we look at the social identities you know, that people bring, what do you bring to that leadership, and how does it shape your leadership? So, being social identities, meaning being female, being um, sexual orientation, religion, disability, ethnicity, race, all of those things that make up who you are, is what people bring to their leadership, as well as the members. And it's that interaction, you know, is to look at that leads to perceptions and expectations and biases as well. And that a lot of times, the perceptions and expectations create the kind of bias that actually disadvantage those who do not look like those who are already in power, those who are already dominant in leadership roles. And therefore, that sets a disadvantage excuse me, disadvantage, and that's a bias. So we need to pay attention to those kinds of things because it, it influences what leaders do and it influences how leaders are expected in terms of what they do. In the middle is the lived experiences. That one of the things that we have found is it's not enough just to say I'm a female, I'm whatever but also what is that experience the lived experiences that one has and that in that things of being being oppressed being marginalized is very central that that shapes the goals of many leaders that being because people bring that with them and the emphasis on social justice which is much more common today is what leaders who have lived experiences uh, put into their goals of leadership. So what are some findings that uh, we have had, not only from my research, but from others? That social identities and lived experiences are more salient in influencing the exercise of leadership. And that women and minority groups often feel that their gender or their ethnicity influences their leadership, while white males' leaders do not. I did a study where that's what we ask. Does gender or ethnicity influence your leadership? And we found a significant sex difference between that. White males basically said, no, it doesn't. I found them both quantitatively and qualitatively. And white men basically said, no, gee, I I never thought about it. But women invariably say, yes, minority folks invariably say, yes, it does influence it. And, uh, and what do these groups often share? It is that experience of marginalization and oppression which in turn influences how they lead. And the follower perceptions and expectations influence leaders. Now for women, and there are many women in this group, is the perception of being soft, the perception that if you're nurturing, that's what women are supposed to be. And therefore, uh, if you're not, then you're not female enough. But if you, the, uh, but also the opposite holds true. If you don't have that nurturing quality, you're not, uh, or, or rather, if you're more aggressive or more confrontative like, uh, how men often uh, use as a style, then you're too masculine and you're not good enough either way. So this is the double bind that often uh, follows women and at, at minority groups in their, in their, and essentially the bottom line is it's a different experience. It's a different experience for women and minority groups, and therefore we need to understand and recognize that. And The other is that some of the cultural specific findings that, finding, that non-white groups were significantly lower than white groups on the charismatic value-based leadership style that was measured on the GLOBE studies. We have found that. And that invariably the uh, women and minority groups will say, well, I'm not really charismatic. I don't really find that as attractive as a style. I'm much more collaborative. You know, and that's true because my community is collaborative. But oftentimes they'll say, but sometimes I can't do it that way because that's not how the culture, my organization is. That I have to be more like the other way because that's what's expected of me. So there's many, uh, many times that's what we see. The other is to look at traits or... or, um, dimensions that are common values within different cultures. The value of indirectness in the Asian culture is one aspect of that. That Asians have developed, I think, to an art, the use of indirectness to preserve harmony and relationships. So rather than saying something to you directly, if I have a disagreement, I'll turn to you and talk about it fully expecting, and all of us would fully expect that you will share that with her, and I will get my point across without embarrassing you. And that's a use of indirectness to achieve a certain outcome. But a lot of times, those who don't understand those cultural values that play out in that way see it as, what's wrong with you? Why can't you be assertive why can't you be direct? Why are you beating around the bush? And it's viewed then negatively. So I can see you nodding as uh, recognizing that must be an experience that you have had. So, uh, so that's one dimension of that. The other thing that I found with uh, looking at Native Americans with the measure that I was using is that uh, I know that Native Americans in the US value collectivism as a concept, as a group, as a community. But yet, on the measure that I used, they did not show that collectivism. And I said, that's strange, because everybody talks about the use of collectivism. When we looked at the results more carefully, what we found is the definition of that collectivism on that measure and that was in the GLOBE studies as well, is that you're talking about loyalty to the group, but they define that as to the mainstream dominant group. And they're saying, but that's not who we're loyal to. And therefore, that's why they did not come out high on collectivism, because they're saying, we are loyal to our group, our uh, indigenous group and values. We, don't, we feel alienated from some of those larger values. And therefore, they did not come out on collectivism. So that's what we have to look at when we try to understand certain concepts, that, uh, which I will talk about in terms of using a affirmative paradigm and looking at global leadership. So that when we're talking about the current research that I do, it's about people, and it's about place. That uh, these are three measures that I use, which includes a questionnaire that expands on the concepts that I've talked about that need to be culturally competent uh, and expand non-Western views in that, and qualitative interviews that really talking about the cultural narratives, the narratives that leaders have, that all of us have, that need to contribute to our understanding of leadership. And we can't do that from some of the quantitative data. And then the last is the emphasis on values and beliefs that are the underlying assumptions that we don't talk about oftentimes when we talk about leadership. So I'm not gonna get into more of that, but to begin to say we need to start looking at how we look at leadership a little differently and to make way for new paradigms Of leadership because if our models are going to be inclusive and valuing of all the groups and to achieve the change that we want to have in society and for the future we need to look at paradigms that work in our new environment and that is culturally competent and inclusive and effective across different contexts and we need to look at when we come up with culturally specific dimensions, that we don't make them negative because, as I use the example about the indirectness, that we need to recognize that the using of the indirectness by Asian-Americans is to maintain harmony, not to avoid confrontation, and that that's the intent. And the same thing about Native Americans but to look also at things like status consciousness, which is a bad thing according to uh, the GLOBE studies. But you need to look at that in terms of the emphasis on the culture and within the respect for the hierarchies that exist in place that need to be protected and valued and not as a way to dominate and rule. And that if we don't recognize those subtle differences then we end up making culturally-specific dimensions negative. So how often have you heard people talk about, oh, you're just too traditional, you know, you're too old-fashioned. You need to get with it and to become more in the new age of modern times. And that's a failure to recognize some of those things that are important. And the last thing in terms of looking at safe places, again, self-protection was considered a negative, one of the negative dimensions in terms of leadership according to the GLOBE studies um, because it's viewed and interpreted to be that you are only out for yourself. However, having talked to many minority groups and those groups that feel marginalized, the sense of being challenged oftentimes about their leadership the, the the challenge of being uh, uh, assaulted, you know, verbally many times, creates a sense of of threat and lack of safety, and the need then for self protection against being um, assaulted in that way. So when you are viewed, and this we see with African Americans oftentimes, when you are viewed as you must be lazy. You must be, uh, you just don't want to work. Or you couldn't possibly be competent. You're going to have to prove that. That one time is fine. You could dismiss. But when it's repeated, the assault is one that builds up. And one has to recognize, as I said, it's a different experience. And therefore, the need for self-protection is, how do you shore yourself up? And how do leaders shore themselves up against that kind of assault? And how do we as society recognize that and set up climates that don't do that? So we need to look at different ways of leadership. And uh, I have a couple of of, uh, uh, comments about it and want to share with you two models. And that as a way of saying it could be different We could be talking about different ways of leadership. And we need to have some new paradigms about that. So one that has come from the work that I've done is the notion of the reluctant leader. uh, This is the recognition that the the consciousness, that recognition should come from others. So we don't volunteer. I'm going to do it. I'm your leader. We wait for others to nominate us. And the reluctant leader is common in some groups and cultures, as this is how it ought to be. The invisible leader, and that I hear often from my Native American colleagues, the issue of the humbleness. And the quote that I've heard repeated in many different ways, leaders do not stand out in front. They lead from behind. And the best leader is the one who is not seen, so that uh, that's something we often don't think about. The issue of giving and receiving face, the need to be asked to step forward, can be at odds in a dominant society which expects you to speak up for yourself, to be assertive, you know, and, and to rather than expecting others to do it for you. And then the last which uh, comes from uh, my work with uh, Division 45 is on ethnic minority groups in the U.S. They have as their slogan and their motto, lift as you climb, meaning that you can rise, but let's not be like the crabs in a basket that pull everybody down. Let's bring people up as we go up. And that's really important when we're talking about uh, diverse leadership. So I offer you two models for you to think about as another way of looking at leadership. Because post-World War II, a lot of the emphasis on models of leadership was on, uh, come, came more from a military authoritarian standpoint. We were looking at uh, uh, dictatorships and the importance of how do we not have dictatorships? How do we not have authoritarian leadership? So the emphasis was on command uh, you know, to win the war. So it was command and control types of leadership. You know, but now that's not quite the way in which uh, leadership is most effective, as we're beginning to find, although, again, I have, to, uh, I have to refer back to that's not the style that our current leader in the U.S. espouses. So I offer you Taoist leadership as one way. That's not about Asian leadership, but about something that can be used for all groups, in which Lee talks about leadership is like water. What does he mean by that? Is that there are five characteristics of water that are metaphors for what effective leadership is, and that um, it's altruistic because it's necessary to sustain life. It's adaptable and flexible because it molds itself to the shape of its container. It's humble because it's always on the bottom. It's soft, but it's strong because it can mold mountains as it flows. And lastly, it's clear and it's transparent. So these are five dimensions of Taoist leadership that it feels oftentimes at odds, but what we talk about, what's a strong leader? Whereas the way it's put by Lee is this is a strong leader even though you would think not given your image of what water is that there is. The other that I offer you is about wolves in nature. So here's a wolf pack and what can you notice is that the first three are the old and the sick and they give pace to the entire pack. And if it was the other way around they'd left they would be left behind, losing contact with the pack, and in case of an ambush, they'd be sacrificed. The next five comes the strong ones. They're the front line. And then in the center are the rest of the pack, and then the five strongest following behind. And last is the alpha, who controls everything from the rear. And um, he can... I found later that he is a she, that the alpha is a she in that case, is that controls everything from the rear, in that position can see everything and decide the direction because they can see all of the pack. So here's another way, again, of looking at leadership that sometimes may be at odds with how we think about it in today's environment, in today's world, and that we should consider that. So that I'm gonna shift now to looking a little about, so what do you do? How do you do leadership? You know, how do you develop the kind of competencies that is global, that is global and diverse leadership? And, uh, and this is using the DLMOX paradigm that I'm talking about. And the first is on the social identities and leadership, which is the core question of who are you And what do you bring to your leadership? And I think that's something to ask of yourselves. Because I would assume and hope that all of you see yourselves as potential leaders, irrespective of position, but in terms of achieving outcomes and taking, promoting change, and so on. But who are you and what do you bring? And the same question is asked of who the members are. And the the next question is, can you bring all of your identities to your leadership? Sometimes not. Sometimes you're not allowed to. Sometimes you are asked to leave behind. It's only just recently the issue of sexual orientation is more permissible to be public. You know, you've recently passed the law, you know, about marriage and so on, but that there are instances in which you can't reveal because it becomes a disadvantage. You can't do anything about being female because everybody usually can see whether you are or not. But with sexual orientation, there's a choice. And and that's true with others that are more invisible. So the question about social identities is, can you bring all of it to leadership? and why or why not. And you need to start with being self-aware and promoting that awareness, as well as creating a safe environment. And again, I'm not gonna get into a lot of this because uh, we only have an hour, and, uh, but, to, uh, but to give you an idea of what I mean by social identities. And the second part is drawing from the lived experiences, is that these are the experiences that are associated with our social identities and their context, and they're associated with oppression, racism, marginalized status, dominant groups, cultural values and affinity. and they can shape the interchange that happens between leaders and guide the behaviors of leadership. So that what are some of the, what does that mean in terms of the dilemmas that it creates? That here we have to recognize that members of minority groups often live in two different worlds. As they negotiate between their professional communities and the community with whom they affiliate, you know, whether it's race, religion, uh, ethnicity, and all. So can you integrate that? And how do you integrate that? Uh, because it can result in challenging your authenticity which then brings me to the question of, does difference make a difference? If you are different, does it make a difference? And for those of you who have never experienced, how many of you have never experienced being different? Anyone? No hands? Okay. Because that's a privilege. It's a privilege never having to experience being different. And because everyone else, or most people around you are like you. And that privilege is something that minority groups don't get to experience. And therefore, we look for common ground to bridge our differences, and we learn to respect diversity. But when we look at the norms that we use to define what's excellent leadership, they continue, actually, to be defined by an elite few. You know, so that if we look at who's the best and most powerful leaders, we have reports that talk about, um, that identify, the Barron's uh, report uh, defines uh, the best and powerful leaders amongst us, and they virtually have identified 87% of them as being white North American males, as being the best leaders. So that with, with data like that, with the media like that, you know, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about white privilege because it's invisible and it's often hard to see that difference matters and it's easy to believe in meritocracy that good things happen to those who, don't des- who deserve it and if you, if you only work hard and play by the rules, it will come to you, but that doesn't always happen when you look at the, the perceptions and the biases that come into play. And related to that is being the one and only. That many times when we're talking about diverse leaders, that being the one and only is when you're the only uh, African-American, Latino, Aboriginal uh, in the room, in the group, then you have a different experience. Because sometimes it it means always being on the outside. It means always being asked to speak up for your group. You know, uh, when Obama was elected president, well, what was it like to be black? Well, uh, you know, he's only one, and said, you know, being expected to speak about your race, being expected about those things. And as many have said, having to work twice as hard to be half as good, and always having to prove yourself. So being challenged on your competence uh, versus the privilege of assuming that you're competent. I spoke to someone who's provost at, you know, actually a university in um, uh, New Zealand, who said, you know something, as an experience, this is what I had. In the US, I've been interviewed for many jobs, and it was always that I had to, uh, he's African American, so I always had to prove myself. When I came for my job interview, and this says positively, Uh, in Australia and New Zealand. That was the first time in my life that I didn't have to prove myself coming in. They assumed I was competent, I just had to then talk in. That's a different experience, I've never experienced that in my life in the US. So so you can give yourself credit for the kind of climate that doesn't take away from the fact that that may be true of an American in Australia New Zealand, not necessarily true of an Aboriginal uh, person in Australia, as I've been told. <laughs> so, that, uh, so being challenged on your competence simply because of the group that you belong to. So now I get to the X part of the DLMOX paradigm, which is that leadership is interpersonal and relational and that too often we miss that and we don't look at that exchange that what happens. And part of that exchange is to ask, who are the leaders around you? Let's look at the dominant and minority groups, the privileged and and marginal statuses, and look at what goes on in that change so that when you look at within an organization, where is the power and how does that get negotiated? And those are some of the things that we talk about. So inherent in the fact that it is an interpersonal experience that we want to look at how important it is to listen and communicate. That's obviously an important fact, and it seems to me that everyone would say, sure, we should listen. But when we're talking about diversity leadership, it's how you listen. That you could listen without hearing, You could listen while keeping the truths that you believe in and interpret them in a way that you believe, not what others know or believe. So that you have to look at and understand that listening has to be able to draw on what the other, that's the part I was talking about in terms of cultural humility, what the others are thinking about and viewing it, not just what you believe in it, which also then looks at the issue of power, is that power seems to be a dirty word in leadership. People have talked about it as, um, oh, you're just in for the power and so on. But we need to take a different look at power because power went from, as I said, during World War II or post-World War II in terms of looking at the military power and dominance and being uh, out there but we need to, and then the 60s where it went to more empowerment and we talk more about empowerment as if power then doesn't exist. But, that's some, but the problem is power does exist and we need to look at that, examine it so that we can look at how we use it for altruistic reasons and how to influence good outcomes. Because when we ignore it, you know we only allow it to be used uh, for non-good outcomes, and uh, and therefore we have to address. It. And again, I'm not going to talk uh, too much with that, but uh, but then so the so the next is is uh, looking at a global and diverse mindset, and I will probably in terms of time, right? The I'll I'll pull together in. Uh, you know, quickly, is that to use a global and diverse mindset is central. So it's not enough just to talk about things I've just talked about, but how do you use a global and diverse mindset? And, uh, and, uh, it's, and it, Because there's often the notion, this is how we've always done it, so that therefore it avoids looking at how we can do it, and how we can do it differently. You know, which brings us into the 21st century types of leadership that some of the things that we're beginning to see is more the sharing of power, the issuing of assertiveness and so on, and embracing more humane and collaborative leadership styles. That's at odds with what the GLOBE studies is finding about being universal, so that we need to look, and when we start talking about using a global mindset, global and diverse mindset, we have to look at the values. What are the values that are in there? The next three values I'll share with you quickly is, are values that probably everybody would agree is important, important to a good leader. So that's not the issue. It's the issue is what are the dilemmas that it poses when we're talking about the existence of difference and the existence of diversity. And integrity is one of them. Is integrity, we would all agree probably. It's important. Good leaders should have integrity. They should do the right thing. They should have a moral compass. And the example I think I gave to some of the C folks was, well, what happened with torture? What happened when 9-11 in the US happened? Nobody, everybody believed in the being moral, doing the right thing, and human rights. But when there was a threat, and there was a sense that we need to protect ourselves, we need to make the world safe, we need to make Americans safe, there was a giving up uh, of some of those ethical, moral issues or human rights issues related to the interrogation of potential terrorists. And that led to a dilemma, because nobody agrees with torture, and nobody agrees, well, some did, but I'm talking about the vast majority. But the thing is that it posed a dilemma when of saying, well, what would you do? Do you protect a terrorist? That's how it's defined, don't forget the perception, versus protecting all of us. And that was a dilemma that created the kinds of behaviors that Retrospectively, when we think back about it, it should never have occurred. So that without getting into more of that, the, uh, the issue of authenticity. Of course, we all believe we should, you should be who you are. Leaders should be true to themselves. But when, when you saw what I posed about living in two different worlds, having cultural values that may conflict with one another, those pose a dilemma to one's authenticity and how does one address that if we truly believe? If everybody were the same, then that would be one thing. But when they're not, and there are different worldviews, there are different ways of being, then we need to look at uh, when is one truly authentic? When you're operating within the frame of your own ethnicity or when you're operating with the frame of the other? And that uh, it's so I'm posing them as dilemmas rather than as okay, here's a solution to how, how we do that. And the other is being flexible and adaptive, that's probably more central to diverse and global leadership, which is that behaving as you, being true and authentic is important. But when you look at being different from what the main dominant culture and so on proposes, that sometimes you need to be flexible because you're, crossing, you're going across different contexts in order to be able to adapt. And that's where, again, I've used Native American leaders who have said, Yes, we believe in collectivism, we believe in these kinds of ways of behaving, but if we did that while we're in the mainstream, we, we wouldn't survive. We didn't survive. And therefore, needing to be flexible and adaptable for that reason doesn't mean we're not being authentic to ourselves. It means we're talking about survival and being able to make it in there. So that's why it's such an important concept to look at. And then uh, I'm going to skip the resilience piece. But what it all boils down to is using an affirmative paradigm. That it boils down to, we need to start with the assumptions. And this is also central to diversity and leadership, is that we need to start with the assumptions that something is positive. So if there's a cultural value behavior practice that have survived the generations, it must have had some value. So when we interpret it as being old-fashioned, traditional, unvaluable, unaffective, we need to question those kinds of assumptions and need to look to how do, can we see it from that Perspective: How can we use an affirmative paradigm to reinforce what's positive about that, without marginalizing those kinds of um, uh, ways and strategies and so on? And that to have to to be uh, to to practice in terms of more diverse and global leadership style is to do that. And the last thing is in terms of looking at our context: that context does matter and that effective leadership is both the organizational and social context, and we need to pay attention to all of that, so that what, um, and we need to essentially promote organizational culture change. You know, and I think I know that within University of Sydney, there is you know, uh, goals to do that, and so I applaud you for that, But at the same time is, how do you examine that? How do you understand uh, what happens? And to look at the dilemmas within higher ed to understand how do you promote culture change? Does the, the culture of the university, does it mirror the dominant culture and mitigate against change? and taking a careful examination of that. And does the mission prepare, if universities are about students, does it prepare students to be responsible and productive global and diverse citizens? To be prepared to work in a world, in a future, where there is uncertainty, there's rapid change, growing diversity, and doing the kinds of things that I talked about that's in that societal context. Does the university do that? And I'm not saying it doesn't, but I think that these are the questions. And then are the knowledges, which is the curriculum, inclusive and diverse of all groups. So that usually what I do when I talk about cultural competence or within higher ed, I talk about the three Cs, that it is um, composition, climate, and curriculum. What you teach, what the climate is, and who's around at the table. You know, that uh, because if universities are about knowledge building for your students, you need to use an affirmative paradigm in the curriculum, how you teach, that recognizes the world views. You need to look at the climate. You need to look at the, that it is interdisciplinary, intercultural, and interconnected. And that's where we need to talk about partnerships and collaboration, the diversity of perspectives, and promoting the innovation and change. Now, I could probably go into more of this, but I realize with the time that I want to open it up. So that, uh, you know, and, and as I said, some of this are things that I know the university has already begun to do. So you already have a head start but you need to have the courage to articulate that shared vision that diversity works, that there's a commitment and buy-in from the top. I know your vice chancellor is supportive of diversity and, um, and to build that into your strategic planning and alliances and lastly, in terms of promoting a supportive climate because all this is for naught if there is hostile, uh, and toxic environments that preclude all of that going on. And that includes then developing the kind of mentorship uh, within the university, the kind of networks that promote and support that kind of collective, um, the supportive environment. And I'm gonna end there by uh, talking about, just the conclusion is, I am talking about leadership for change. That is your slogan. That is something, and that it is leadership for good. You know, but who are you, and what do you bring? And So I'm concluding, not with a conclusion, but with questions that you can use, or hopefully will use, in terms of thinking about what is the future going forward? Is how will, how will you promote that organization culture change? And what is it that translates concretely on the ground to inclusive and diverse leadership to lead to shared outcomes. So with that, let me end and thank you for your attention.
0: Thank you, Jean, that was absolutely amazing and insightful and inspiring. And uh, we have plenty of time for questions, so there's a microphone, I'm going to leave the stage and leave the questions to you. Okay. Thank you very much, it's an interesting topic. I'm very much interested in hearing a little bit more about the Daoist um, leadership culture. Um, it could be some examples about how it can, you know, how it can be in, uh, implied in the real life.
1: How it? Uh,
0: how it can be uh, put into real practice? Right.
1: So if you look at um, the the principles, you know, the there are five principles. As I said, it's recognizing its strength. So one is. Um, Looking at, let me kind of refer back to, let me just refer back to the, oops, the, the principles. So you, because you want to talk specifically about how to operationalize that. These are the five principles. Is that the soft and str- but strong is that really not, do confrontative methods. Are they the only things that work? Or how is, what about cooperative types of methods? That you don't have to hit somebody on the head. You don't have to negotiate by being assertive and getting your way. You can, you know, be cooperative and and collective in that process. So that's one way. The humbleness is acknowledging and recognizing that others can offer that expertise. That's where the team team leadership and team uh, decision-making has been found to be effective in terms of creating the most innovative solutions and change. Because instead of saying, I will take charge, I will decide, is that, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, let's look at how we can do that together. And, And I'm not the one that's leading, but... It's all of us doing it, co-creating something together. And similarly with being adaptable and flexible is that it's like how steel buildings are made, right? If you have something concrete, you knock it, it falls down. But steel buildings waver, you know, they're more flexible, so they stand up, you know, and stay. So those are some of the ways to start to, to... That basically it's starting to view things as... Uh, not might against might, force against force, you know, but you know, taking a different way of looking at things. Yes?
2: So to that point, I think everyone here agrees that those are great leadership styles, but how do you affect change when, I don't know the numbers, but 80% of the world's business leaders in big organizations are those white male grown up through the times of, they don't, didn't have to deal with being different. So how do you affect change in the existing leadership so that you can then affect change throughout the organization? Yeah.
1: That's clearly a complex process. There is one book, um, can't remember the name of it right now, but they looked at minority leaders you know, as they rose to become leaders in a corporation and what they found, there's not gonna be the positive answer to what you're asking. What they found is that uh, they ended up being more like the people who were already there. They conformed. You know, so the, and I also know of women who, if you look at the history of women in leadership and go over in terms of the decades, when women first became in roles of leadership within the corporate, what, did they, what was the dress style? Let's focus on dress. They wore the three-piece suits, the ties, you know, that mimicked what the prevailing model is. If you wore a dress, that was viewed as, oh, that's much too feminine for that kind of style for the corporate world. So that, I say that not to be pessimistic, but rather you need to look at evolution. You have to look at how things change. Change is a process and it's a long one. And it means that you need to, that's the flexibility and the adaptability. Is that that's the courage of ha- of thinking, uh, doing what you believe is right, you know, even though nobody agrees with you. The women who stood up and did it differently paved the way that now we can. Women do wear dresses when they uh, when when they as leaders and so on. They can be more feminine. They have a choice, you know. In that, that was not possible. Early on, you know, so that so the notion of how can you do it is because some things have changed, you know, and it takes time for that to change. But that also then speaks to what I was saying about the discouragement of many uh, in the U.S. when Trump got elected, because it felt as if all the change that we were able to make got undone, you know, by. That. and And that perhaps is recognizing that there will always be that backlash. Why did that happen is that there were, we didn 't listen to the voices of those who felt they were left behind that with all the emphasis on diversity, these were the voices that said, "But what about me?" you know and these were the people in the majority who we thought were privileged and you know, and so on. So that when we're talking about diversity, we need to talk about all, you know, in terms of that. And listening to all those voices that doesn't marginalize those who also, you know, in the majority and all. And change is slow. Yes. Thank you for an interesting talk. Just wondering how initiative fits into some of the leadership styles. How what? Initiative, which sometimes is a dirty word. How initiatives? Fits into some of these. The current initiatives within the university? No, I'm more just thinking
0: initiative in general, like taking the initiative to do something and those sorts oh, of things. Oh, how initiative yeah, takes. In general.
1: Yeah. Well, people don't like change, you know, in general. People do not like change. So that being a, so I think that we, you know, as someone was telling me, and not only do people don't like change, but how do people make decisions? is that it's often not based on rational thinking. It's based on gut and emotion, and then people come up with the rational thinking to justify what they've decided. So when you talk about initiative and all that, you need to recognize those underlying values and assumptions and beliefs that are operating to make for that. And you, that's where, why it's important to have a clear vision about what do you want to accomplish? Because when people respond to you, it will not be based on a rational analysis of what you proposed as an initiative, or, or taking initiative. It's based on that gut feeling. I don't like you. And then that's, that's what drives what they'll say yes or no to. And where do those come from? That's why I emphasize the notion of social identities and all the things it evokes, you know, because it's not often, it's not about fact, because it's overgeneralizations and all. So I hope that answers your question.
2: Thank you for your lecture. Um, I wondered, at the beginning you mentioned that your study encompasses a lot of like different leaders from different cultures. And that it's important to pay attention to context. So I wonder whether you also considered regime type as another factor of influence. I
1: am citing the whether blessed. you
2: considered regime type as another influence. So I wondered whether a certain regime type might be more conducive to actually empowering certain leaders that meet your characteristics of a good leader? Because I think especially in democracies it might be difficult for a person to actually promote something that's good in sustainable ways. If the person knows that he or she has to say what the like, like what the constituency wants to hear in a way if it's only for a short time span.
1: Yeah, asserting I didn't catch some of that. So the, um whether uh, regime, regime
2: type matters. The what? The
1: regime. The regime. The regime.
2: Like, whether state is a democracy or anocracy or Oh, the type dictatorship? of regime, the political yeah. kind of regime. In like um, making or like in promoting that a good leader is elected? Right, right.
1: The thing, okay, I think, I, yeah, I think I, that's obviously an advantage of, uh, I, my, showing my bias clearly, of living in a democracy in the United States that we could protest and, uh, and object, you know, to, uh, I, when I came here as a Fulbright scholar, I didn't know if I could say anything negative about the sitting president since I'm coming here you know, under the uh, US government, basically, but have found that I've gotten support for being able to articulate what my opinion and my views are. That is the privilege of living in a democracy that uh, uh, can, can, will try, maybe, in this current regime, but, uh, but can't silence those voices. So I think that there is risk and safety. Having been in other countries where that's not the case, uh, I think that uh, it's not safe. You know? But that doesn't mean that there wasn't protest. That doesn't mean that didn't happen. And I could use in China's two examples that uh, even though there was a restrictive and a regime that may not have been as open to open dialogue and, and all that, people did protest and people did make change, and even in traditional culture there, for example, because I did a lot of work on looking at women's uh, leadership, at, because people used to say to me, uh, why is it that Asian American women are so uh, behind us in terms of the feminist movement? You know that why can why aren't they more feminist and yeah, you know, and I'm thinking, well, there's a lot of reasons. One is because the issue of gender and ethnicity, that ethnicity trumps gender in terms of defining one's identity. And therefore, it's different when you're a white woman versus when you're an Asian woman. But also, in researching that, I looked at it. And do you know that the women's movement started before the women's movement in the US, the women's movement in China? started before the women's movement in the U.S. And the whole emphasis of the Taoist religion and so on is uh, based on equality and equity that is at odds with the Confucian uh, emphasis that's on hierarchy. So that those things do exist, and and if we look at the regimes over time, uh, the U.S. has become much more... uh, there's been a reversal in terms of some of the concepts about communism and democracy in reverse, crossing between the countries. So that you do need to look at, yes, there are changes, and there are things that uh, will take place, but it it really becomes where it needs to be more broad-based, because it doesn't happen when there's just a few. So the people that I was talking about who may change by going into corporations and becoming leaders, ended up like those leaders. But when it becomes more broad based that change begins to occur. And that's revolution.
0: Um, my question was about, um, you were talking about noticing like notions of difference within yourself, but then I suppose that sort of links to being authentic and bringing out yourself more in an organization. Um, I guess if, could you give us some examples of where there may have been organisations or particular teams where there's been quite low morale with um, a lot of stuckness and people not willing to change, um, how you actually managed or, or people have managed to actually address that level of consciousness and, and act as a leader in that sense?
1: How yeah, how groups and organisations have, uh, have been resistant to change and how that can be addressed. I think that one is that all groups, everybody is actually resistant to change. We're we're all more comfortable in our own comfort zone. So that the question really boils down to, uh, what's in it for me that you need to be asking? That why would somebody want to change? That it has to have a benefit and that benefit has to be translated in a way that they can resonate with that. You know, and uh, So with some of the things of resistance to change, people have changed because they had to and because the circumstances that presented themselves meant that um, it was risky, it was uh, not beneficial to stay in the same place and not do that. So that one thing might be, I'm trying to think of a good example, might be sometimes when the whole, I'll I'll focus back on the gender issue, is that when men have been in situations they've begun to see women around, uh, that they then, you know, there have been men who've been able to say, hey, you know, we need to be more inclusive. We need to do that. And those who didn't, you know, uh, were ones that then uh, became much more, uh, less able to adapt and to, you know, to quote, survive within that organization. So, the, so that's what promoted the change because the, there were men who were able to say, hey, this is good for all of us. That's why when uh, NCCC talks about diversity is everybody's business, it makes it that it's not just about you or me gaining something. It's the fact when we do this stuff that everyone does benefit and there is benefit. So that's the issue of what's in it for me needs to be uh, experienced and articulated before that change begins, before people are willing to change and make that move.
0: I have course, for Jim.
1: Okay. Thank you.
0: Well, I certainly think that there is some thought-provoking um, leadership issues for us all. I do like to th- say, you know, Jean and us donning our cloaks with our pants and uh, sensible shoes up here are doing quite well, I think. <laughs> Mixing with it, being leaders. Mm-hmm. And I also am now, after you talking, I've been talking so freely um, about... Donald Trump here in Australia, we we're hoping you're going to be able to get back in the country. No. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so just one more round of applause for Jean and thank you all so much for coming tonight. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.